Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Where are you calling from, Paula? It is Foothills of Alexandra Palace. It's uh, N8, Crouch Hill. N8. Can you see uh, Alexandra Palace from there? I can. If I crouch weirdly through and look through my neighbour's garden, I can see uh, the spire. What's the word? The tower. That's why it's called Crouch Hill. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Everyone is just gently winching themselves so they can see you know, through people's hedges. Um, about a 20-minute walk away from Alexandra Palace. And I did ice skating last January there to try and learn how to ice skate. And I was dreadful at it. Does that feel like last January or does it feel lo- like... Yeah, January? right. January 600 years ago. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It really does. It really does. I, I went ice skating once, Ellie. It's not, it's not straightforward at all, is it? Mm. I'm glad you said that. It looks so easy to do. Just right. put the skates on just and off go you go. Just go some ice and glide. Like, surely I should be able to. I found it was, you know, the most likely thing was that if I kept doing it, I would break an ankle. Right. Break an ankle and embed a skate in a toddler's <laughs> face. Like, that was pretty much the sl- And slice the off your fingers and the fingers of those around you. That was right. my main. Right. My main. No, no natural aptitude. It's very hard. It's one of those things that you can't look good at the first time. You have to hold on desperately to the side of the edge of the ice rink and sort of shuffle around. It's it's annoying. It's like unlike badminton or table tennis, (laughs) where you can actually feel like you're really quite a good player quite quickly, (laughs) even though you're not. But you know, you sort of feel that you're getting to the most of the shots, and you know, you you can serve quite quickly and. Now it's badminton on ice where I'd really feel I'd come into my own and finally I true mastery of, of my physical form and sport. <laughs> well, well, something to aim for when all this is over. How surprising. <laughs> right. How surprising. It's exactly this kind of activity that the author of the book we've been discussing believed people found ecstasy in, which you know. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right. Well, well, Did she? Yeah, yeah. Got a Did nice childbirth, badminton yeah. on ice, those were the two really. Sports. Art and literature came a long way down the list. Oh my God! This is this is this Hot already. News. You haven't you only told me this before we've even started. <laughs> I, ha- I hate her even more. Joke, 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 I think that's sufficient jollity. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today you find us. Oh, well, I'm not exactly sure where. We were dozing off in a sun-filled room in a terraced Regency house near the canal in London. It was sometime in the late 1940s, and we were staring at shiny silk curtains decorated with huge pink roses. But now we appear to be in a very different room. The curtains are dark red-brown plush, and the sky 
is a leaden grey. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Readings Dangerously. And joining us today for the first time, well, actually the second time, because this is officially the haunted episode of that is, <laughs> where a number of mysterious gremlins afflicted us on a Friday. So we reconvened today. So far, we exorcised the Zoom and it all seems to be working okay now. So joining us today for the first time publicly is the writer Ellie Williams. Hello, Ellie Williams. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. Thank you for choosing this particular book. I have a series of questions about it coming up. <laughs> Just put you at your ease, don't worry. Pick up your pens. <laughs> yes, pick up your pens. Yes. Yeah. The Liar's Dictionary, Ellie's debut novel, was published this year by William Heinemann. Her short story collection, A Trib and Other Stories, published by our friends at Influx, won the James Tate Black Prize and the Republic of Consciousness Prize, and we featured it here on Batlisted, though I can't remember off the top of my head which episode it's on but I uh, we both absolutely love that book and I, I love the liar's dictionary as well one of my questions about the liar's dictionary is were you partly inspired by Marganita Lasky's career as a lexicographer to write that novel I was not um but the fact that dictionaries have these secret lives and these networks of people who submit to them on a kind of uh, a basis of, of some kind of anthill <laughs> that they're all working away for it rather than it being the kind of monoliths of Dr. Johnson or Merriam-Webster or anything like that. that Jonathan Green. We have, <laughs> right, right, like the dictionaries are in the modern sense really cultural artefacts that draw upon the work of often anonymous mm. people that are sending in their histories of words, how they've first discovered a word, a strange word, an obscure to them word. And people like Lasky, who I think I'm right in saying it was a quarter of a million words. Yeah, of a she million. provided the original texts for them or examples of use. I'm gonna. I've, I've got a little bit of a, a memoir she wrote about working on the dictionary for later oh, on well. the podcast. Yeah. Um, but I, and also the other thing I thought I, I thought the Liars Dictionary was really really funny, um, and I wondered whether it had been inspired. I please say yes at <laughs> any level by one of the funniest books of the 20th century, and one of the most important lexicographical tomes of the late 20th century which is The Meaning of Lyft by John Lloyd and Douglas Adams. <laughs> Between the men- Meaning of Lyft and Uxbridge Dictionary on, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. Yeah. Um, those are the, the two uh, icons, the two pillars uh, that, that really, the, the idea of bringing humour and the dictionary, I think mm. it started with those, with those two, certainly, yeah. Um, but also that's the brilliant idea of how many things there aren't words for, which, you know, you, right. which is obviously what 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 Liff is about, but you you weave that so brilliantly into into the novel. I haven't finished. I, this is still the introduction. We're still going. <laughs> Frit, a chapbook of poems by Ellie, is published by Sad Press. This year, she was shortlisted for the BBC National Short Story Award for a short story, Scrimshaw, concerning walruses, miscommunications, and ellipses. She lectures at Royal Holloway University of London, and you are on Twitter, Ellie. 
as you've got a very memorable Twitter handle, which is at Giant Rat Sumatra. And could you tell the boys and girls the derivation of your Twitter handle? It will something related to it will come up later in the program. So imagine if I said, "Well, yeah, that's my actual name." <laughs> Anyone <Aliens laughs> assume that's my full given name. Um, that is uh, that's to do with a case that is referred to uh, canonically um, in the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And we never are, uh, as readers, given an experience of the case. We're not given who the villain is or, or really what the storyline or crime that's been committed. That's never divulged. But in a kind of offhand gesture, Sherlock Holmes um, refers to the case of the giant rat of Sumatra um, and says that the world is not yet ready for that story to be told. And it's kind of dangled there as... Um, something for readers to speculate about. I know they have. Um, and I've always just liked the idea of that giant rat, that mischievous, huge, hulking uh, Godzilla of the rodent world, um, somehow being part of Sherlock Holmes's uh, life and his earth. That's very of a piece with the Liars Dictionary, isn't it? This idea that something's in, a, in an interzone of, of it's canon but not canon. It exists but it doesn't exist. Anyway, before... We call the doctor in from the next room. Andy, what have you been reading this week? John, when I was a child, <laughs> I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I read Lee Child. <laughs> but when I became a man, I read Thomas Mann. And I put away Lee Childish things. <laughs> That's, as you will know, a quotation from the Book of Books, chapter 13, verse 11. Um, I was inspired on this show because the Victorian Chaise Long is an extremely short book about TB. To talk about an extremely long book about TB, The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann. Thomas Mann, I should say. Thomas Mann, German. And I read this last month. And I wanted to talk about it for several reasons today. I was inspired to read it because when my book, The Year of Reading Dangerously, was first published, one of the first reviews it got on social media was three stars out of five. And the entire review ran, this is a good idea, but where is the magic mountain? <laughs> <laughs> and because I hold a grudge, as Nikki pointed out last week, <laughs> I, that stuck in my mind for the last few years, forever. And I thought, well, I really ought to read The Magic Mountain. A stone in your shoe. Go back and write my book again and put The Magic Mountain in it and go, I read The Magic Mountain. And you know what? It was all right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so. Can you now make a comment on that good read? Thank you for your, uh, your useful addition. No author should do that. <laughs> not, even, not even me. I'm going to be roasted over the cold throat for this. I, I know there are people... Uh, for whom The Magic Mountain is their favourite novel and the intellectual high point of the 20th century. But I have to say, as a reading experience, I found it a bit of a curate's egg. There's some incredible sections of it. Um, the famous set piece in the snow quite near the end of the book was really incredible. And it's definitely worth reading the whole thing. Funnily enough, Johnny, in fact, the last third is where things really... Um, 
pick up exactly. I don't think <laughs> there's no point in the magic mountain. Sorry, where, I was where, thinking where, of Lee Child. I, just... Yeah, where, where you're gripped. You're not gripped. You grip the magic mountain. You climb. You don't. You don't get. <laughs> Thomas Mann doesn't provide you with a, a ski lift there, to take you to the top. <laughs> you know. <laughs> It's uh, it's it's uh, you need no, the crampons. No walking poles for for, for yeah. You. Yeah, it's very funny that there are some bits which are very funny, uh, and some really brilliantly uh, turned characters. But there's also um, quite a lot of symbolic characters standing around, elucidating at great length philosophical. Or medical points of view, or to give it the technical term, mansplaining. <laughs> Boom. Very good. <laughs> but all that said, I still think it's worth the effort to read a big book like this, because the truth is, you don't know what you think until you've read it. True. You're, I thought I knew what it was going to be, and it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And it was more challenging in some ways, and but also lighter and funnier. And as I say, with these little moments of, of clarity. But there's a, just one bit here that I thought I would share with you, because it seemed to fit what we're, what we're talking about today. This is a character called, called Herr Settembrini who represents, broadly speaking, represents humanism, my notes tell me. And he's talking to uh, the hero, Hans Castor, and they are both residents in the TB sanatorium near Davos, in which much of the action of this novel takes place. Herr Tembrini is speaking. But first he says some quick background information. Um, he's a member of the League for the Organisation of Progress, and he says... The League for the Organization of Progress has resolved in Barcelona to publish a multi-volumed work, which is to bear the title The Sociology of Suffering, and in which human sufferings of all classes and species will be treated in detailed, exhaustive, systematic fashion. It sounds a bit like a dictionary, doesn't it? That's the thing. So, and he says, this is the purpose of our sociological pathology, an encyclopedia of some 20 or so volumes that will list and discuss all conceivable instances of human suffering, from the most personal and intimate to the large-scale conflicts of groups that arise out of class hostility and international strife. In short, it will list the chemical elements that serve as the basis for all the many mixtures and compounds of human suffering, taking as its plumb line the dignity and happiness of humankind it will supply for each and every instance of suffering the means and measures that seem most appropriate for eliminating its causes. Renowned scholars and experts from all over Europe, medical doctors, economists, psychologists, this is the, the ants of which uh, Ellie was speaking, will participate in drafting this encyclopedia. And the general editorial and offices Lugano in Lugano will act as the reservoir into which all articles will flow. I can read the question in your eyes. What will be my role in all of this? <laughs> um, and he says, he goes on, he says, he's been asked to be the editor. This immense work, he says, does not wish to see Bell Lecture neglected either, at least to the extent they will speak of human suffering. Literature is therefore to have its own volume, which is to contain as solace and advice for those who suffer a synopsis and short analysis of all masterpieces of world literature dealing with every such conflict. It is a very complex task, demanding much prudence and vast reading. Especially, he added now, his gaze seemingly lost in the immensity of his mission. Because 
especially because literature has regularly chosen suffering as its topic. Even masterpieces of only second or third rank have been concerned with it in one way or another. But no matter, he clapped his hands together, all the better. <laughs> um, and I was thinking about that and I was thinking, well, yeah. Uh, well, I was thinking the Victorian chaise longue is, uh, is a small masterpiece <laughs> of which we can decide which rank, but it is about suffering. So fair play to Hesset and Brini on that. It is. Uh, Ellie, have you read The Magic Mountain? John, have you read The Magic Mountain? I never have. I've, I've dallied in the foothills, but I've never committed to the full ascent. I, I find whenever I'm, I come across extracts of it, I love it. I enjoy it. Uh, I think in part, there's the, the kind of frisson to know that it's still there um, to be enjoyed. Yeah. And from that reading, perhaps now I feel I'm ready. Um, and Do you though? I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> no, you, you, I have to say, Andy, you made, it, you made it sound rather, you made it sound more appealing than I was expecting it to, to be. I don't know. I feel I've talked it down a bit now. I don't know. I have a man-shaped hole in my reading eyes. <laughs> man. A man-shaped hole. hole. And I've picked up and looked at Death in Venice several times. I have a copy of it at home. I never committed. Well, well that's so, a book about suffering. Yeah, much saw the shorter. movie. <laughs> I think you only did that whole thing just so you could get the mansplaining gag in there. It was what? very, very good. <laughs> Nikki, why do I do anything? Why do I do anything? It's only to drop in one one tiny gag. It was it was brilliant. It was worth it. Yeah, but he. I mean, my favourite ever quote about writing is the is the one attributed to him, which is that you know a writer is someone who finds writing more difficult than other people. Um, so I, I've always felt that he's 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 definitely somebody who I, I I would be disappointed if I hadn't read anything of in you know, within the next ten years. Let's say he started off writing this as a novella. In 1912, <laughs> you know that's true. In 1912, he I got started some good news. I got some bad news. Yeah, and he finished it. And he finished it in 1924. So anyway, um, I read the translation. I should say translation by John E. Woods, uh, which was written, I think, about 20 years ago. That's enough about Thomas Mann. John, what have you been reading this week? Well, I've I've been reading a very small. Uh, in in comparison, a very small, very lovely and uh, treasured book that I discovered when I was fishing in the ice upstairs to try and find my copies of Susan Cooper. Mm. Um, I found this book, which has got the stunningly kind of descriptive title, Author's Choice. That's a puffin, isn't it, from when? It's a puffin. It was published originally in Harback in 1970 by Hamish Hamilton, published in Puffin in 1973, which is when I bought it. Might have been a Puffin Post special, but it's seventeen mm. distinguished authors choosing stories, and I had completely forgotten about it, except that one or two of the stories lived in my mind. And by extraordinary coincidence, the story that most lived in my mind from it was a story called "The Tower" by Margarita Lasky, <gasps> which was chosen. I mean, this, the the choosers, by the way, are quite interesting when you think now. I mean, Alan Garner chose it. But there's Leon Garfield, Noel Strickfield, Ursula Moray-Williams, Ian Seralia, Rosemary Sutcliffe, Geoffrey Treese, Barbara Willard, and a marvellous writer I'd never heard of called Hester Burton, who mm. I have since bought two books by because it turns out she lived in Oxford and she wrote historical novels. She wrote a book that won the, the Carnegie called Time of Trial. Oh, look at that. And a, an amazing little book about Otmore, which is near Oxford, called Otmore Forever, which is something I'm interested I mean, I was weirdly doing some research into the Otmore riots. I think this is the only work of fiction it's ever produced. 
And she chose for this story the other one that I really remember, which links back to another backlisted, which is The Foghorn by Ray Bradbury. Uh, mm-hmm. If you remember, we uh, mm-hmm. I think uh, 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 Jan Allen read some uh, an extract from that. I remember um, yeah. And it's it's just it's one of those things. It's just a mar- it's what Puffin used to do really well. Hamish Hamilton did the Book of Goblins, and the you know there was that series of anthologies. There's no theme to it whatsoever, except that the stories are all good. There's a there's a marvelous Catherine Mansfield story. There's a great bit of about the Philly Jonks from Tova Janssen. So it must have been the first time I came across the Moomins as well. I think um, there's a marvelous Arthur Ransom story from his his uh, old Peter's Russian folk tales. I just wanted to read what Alan Garner said about the tower. And then I'm going to read you a little bit of a Franco, very short bit of a Franco Connor story. But what he said about the tower was this. There are certain stories that present ideas and emotions with a force that's never forgotten. The tower is one of those. It is all the more remarkable for not being perfect. I find the slow beginning, <laughs> the finicky background of plot very irritating. But as soon as Caroline arrives at the tower, the author turns relentless. And the result is simply the most terrifying story I know. Now, I'd love to read it, but I can't. But we'll find a way of... of... Ellie, have you read it? I've read The Tower. Um, I think I first came across it as a a radio production of it, Um, uh, just a a straight reading. Um, And I don't think my goose pimples have gone down since then. (laughs) Um, it It is a real way of exhibiting how the psychology of a person who's so hopeful and so curious can end up being this trap. You know how in in films, when you're aware of the soundtrack building up to this terrible moment, and it's always a disappointment when the moment happens, you're like, okay, here comes the arterial spray, here comes the alien, whatever. The fact that you would never get there, that you would never have the release of the the terror being shown or the the monster being revealed. You're just, as a reader, suspended in that moment forever (laughs) with the character. And um, I mean, that's not too much of a spoiler to say. I I, I don't think so. It's it's a really brilliant story. The other one that I really remember is just, I'll just read a little little bit, which is uh, called First Confession by Frank O'Connor, chosen by the Irish novelist Eilis Dillon. And it's about a little kid who's decided he wants to kill his grandmother. And that's what he came to his first confession to tell the priest. The priest says, in what way were you going to kill her? Asked the priest smoothly. With a hatchet, father. When she was in bed. No, father. How so? When she ate the potatoes and drinks the porter, she falls asleep, father. And you'd hit her then. Yes, father. Wouldn't a knife be better? Twould, father. Only I'd be afraid of the blood. Ah, yes, of course. I never thought of the blood. Uh, I'd be afraid of that, Father. I was near hitting Nora with the bread knife one time. She came with me under the table, only I was afraid. You're a terrible child, the priest said with awe. I am, Father, said Jackie noncommittally, sniffing back his tears. And what would you do with the body? How, Father? Wouldn't someone see and tell? Ah, I was going to cut her up with a knife and take away the pieces and bury them. I could get an orange box for threepence and make a cart to take them away. My, my said the priest. You had it all well planned. I tried that, said Jackie with mountain confidence. I borrowed a cart and practised it myself one night after dark. And weren't you afraid? Ah, no, said Jackie half-heartedly. Oh, only a bit. You have terrible courage, said the priest. There's a lot of people I want to get rid of, but I'm not like you and never have the courage. And hanging is an awful death. Is it? asked Jackie, responding to the brightness of a new theme. <laughs> Ooh, an awful blooming death. Did you ever see a fellow hanged? Dozens of them, and they all died roaring. 
Gee, said Jackie. They do be swinging out there for hours and the poor fellows lipping and roaring like bells in a belfry and then they put lime on them to burn them up. Of course they pretend they're dead, but sure they don't be dead at all. Gee, said Jackie again. So if I were you, I'd take my time and think about it. In my opinion, tisn't worth it, not even to get rid of a grandmother. I asked dozens of fellows like you that killed their grandmothers about it and they all said, no, it wasn't worth it. Nora was waiting across the yard. The sunlight struck down on her across the high wall and its brightness made his eyes dazzle. Well, she said, what did he give you? Three Hail Marys. You mustn't have told him anything. I told him everything, Jackie said confidently. What did you tell him? Things you don't know. He gave you three Hail Marys because you're a crybaby. Jackie didn't mind. He felt the world was very good. He began to whistle as well as the hindrance in his jaw permitted. What are you sucking? Bull's eyes. Was he that gave them to you? was. Almighty oh, God, said Nora. Some people have all the luck. I might as well be a sinner like you. There's no use in being good. <laughs> That's a Frank O'Connor story, yeah. right? So in, in January this year, about the time that uh, Ellie was learning to skate, <laughs> I read an anthology of Frank O'Connor's short did stories. You, I'd never Frank, read Frank O'Connor before, and that was one of my favourite stories. And when you, and when you, I didn't recognise it by title, but when you started reading yeah. it, I was like, oh, I know this one. Great. Brilliant choice. And that was in a book for children. Yeah, look, look <laughs> in this little author's choice. But it's like, it's Man, like a little, it's, honestly, it's an amazing co- compilation of stories. And there's not, there's not a bad, two, there's two very good, one brilliant Kipling, which I'd never read before. Also, we should say, because new facts have come to light all the time, not least since we recorded the Molesworth episode. So this, this is a classic example of a piece of Puffin publishing um, overseen, oh, yes. masterminded by Kay Webb. Do you, want to, do you want to share with the boys and girls what the, um, <laughs> what the fact is we learnt uh, about Puffin and about Kay Webb since the, since the last show? So we discovered that Kay Webb was the second wife of Ronald Searle, and that Ronald Searle, the, the, the Martin Rosen mentions Ronald Searle abandoning his family to go and live with somebody else in France, and the family that was abandoned was Kay Webb and her two children, and it was out of that absolute devastation, because she was devastated, that she decided that she'd have to, A, she had to do something to I mean, it was basically uh, Puffin was was one of the the, the the thing that she did. She'd got the job at, at Puffin and never looked back and built the most famous children's list in the world, I guess, certainly at that time. And had an effect on the lives of thousands yeah. and thousands of Probably readers, millions of children. Right. Over in a, like, but what we are doing today is a result of... You know what Searle said about th- that act, uh, which is clearly... Uh, a, a bad thing to do. When challenged on it, he said words to the effect of, well, this is how I, I suppose it's how I survived yes. the Burma Railway. I suppose it's how I survived being a prisoner of war. It was self-preservation. It wasn't noble or pretty or glorious, but it was what I had to do, so I did it. I mean, you know. But out of that came, this is interesting, isn't it? Because out of that came his art and... Puffin books, yeah, arguably. So, um, well, what a thing! What a thing! 
I think it's time to talk about the Victorian chaise. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use gift mode. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and gift mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Boom. I mean, I was very keen to run that all the way through the rest of the show. <laughs> and I just start rocking back and forth and just all the metronomes go backwards in my house. That is the sound of a grandfather clock that was manufactured in 1864, the year in which Victorian Chaise Long was partly set. Mm. Uh, I thought that was, that was sufficiently Very nice. Um, I like it. Um, fortuitous meant to be authentic so hear a bit yeah. of that so the victorian shows long a short book it's not even a hundred pages it's published in 1953 it's terrifying where did you find this book or hear about marganita lasky whichever came first well i first heard of lasky um my first part of my undergraduate um i uh, applied to do theology uh, and I quickly saw the error of my ways and, and wheeled back to, to English literature. Um, but for that first bit where I was terribly diligent and I was reading about notions of, this goes to show what kind of student I was, when it's like, oh, out-of-body experiences. I didn't do the fun stuff. <laughs> I was reading about St. <laughs> Teresa of Avila and what is it to have an ecstatic religious experience? <laughs> okay, yeah. um, and as John mentioned, that um, Lasky was... Uh, as well as many things, uh, a literary critic and sociological critic, really, of the notion of ecstasy. What does it mean to have an ecstatic experience, whether through art, through religion, or various other means? Um, and first of all, her name came up on that as one of the few women writers uh, that was on the syllabus. 
And so I I think there was an, an interview um, that mentioned that she first had the idea or was prompted by uh, friends or acquaintances of, of hers to write about ecstasy because someone had read her novel and had felt that how she framed the ecstatic or notions of ecstasy in that book would perhaps inform a, a certain conversation or a certain kind of critique of, of what ecstasy was. And at that time, I very diligently went to what was then Borders and bought a copy of the book. I then summarily ignored it um, and only came across the, as you say, very slim volume um, much later, more as kind of curiosity. I'd forgotten about any of the kind of background for it. And as you say, it starts as quite a kind of fussy, kind of futsy book. Yeah. And then becomes this really strange time traveling, locked in syndrome, mm. horror novella. And it just stayed with me for that reason. I think in part because of that negotiation within such a, a short text, um, you you feel like there is humor at the beginning. There is a kind of turn to a yellow wallpaper psychological treatment of mm-hmm. um, a woman oppressed by society and, and choices. And then this theological element to it, this, this kind of, sense of rapture but also stasis and body horror and to get all that in 99 pages i think it's it's something you don't forget were you are you uh to the extent to which this book does conform to genre did you read much horror fiction or many short stories of the uncanny so did it did you have that background to it or was it uh, a, a a bit of a an exception I think I I feel that short stories, um, often the ones that I'm drawn to are either the ones that have that kind of taste in the head, this idea of nothing really happens, but this mood is evoked or something like that, or a ghost story and horror story where the ending is crucial um, and, and where the reader is positioned and how they're treated by the end uh, is, is just um, administered with such panache and kind of gall. So mm. I, I do tend to find, especially kind of this post-Halloween coming up to Christmas uh, stretch of time, those are the short stories that I that I seek out. But I wasn't expecting it with this one, so maybe that's why it affected me the most. What kind of authors are we talking about then for those short stories of the uncanny? Which writers do you particularly admire? I think in that bracket, um, Saki, because they there's a gentility there that then becomes cruel and weird. Mm-hmm. I guess to a lesser extent, but but in that world, uh, Arthur Macken, um, Algernon Blackwood. Shall I just read the blurb on the not on the Persephone edition because that's not how they do it. But um, <laughs> um, I've I've got the the pen, the sixties or seventies Penguin edition here, and I thought it might be useful just to hear the blurb of that to set the book up for listeners. Uh, the Victorian shows long. In this short, eerie novel by the author of Little Boy Lost, a young mother who is recovering from tuberculosis falls asleep on a Victorian chaise longue and is ushered into a waking nightmare of death among strangers. That's it. <laughs> that's There's good. a couple of review quotes, but that's it. Death among strangers. I thought that was really good. Yeah. Well, it's, the... I mean, the um, epigraph that yeah. she uses, a line of T.S. Eliot, I think it's from... T.S. Eliot's Song of 
A Song for Simeon. That's the one. That's the one. The epigraph is, I am dying in my own death and the deaths of those after me. Setting up this idea of kind of, kind of Banquo's ghost, this infinite regression of death that you have to face or uh, encounter, and how that is, again, as with the tower, a trap that you're suspended in. And what is it to be frozen or, or trapped in aspic and to yet still experience the world rather than be a kind of voyeur on it? As with the tower, the ending of this book is is not clearly determined. It doesn't come up with a big rolled doll-like kind of, you know, tied up with a bow sort of. It's it's much cleverer, I think. When she's trying to explain it, she's thinking, if I could only explain to people about things, about the future that I have seen, they'll understand my predicament. But it's like the words, the words just sort of die on her lips, don't they? She's trying to talk about aeroplanes and she's trying to talk about gramophone records and penicillin but she can't actually because she's in this strange indeterminate place between being one character who's called Melanie and another one who's called Millie it's about as brilliant a a, a presentation of that feeling that you sometimes get between sleep and waking where you're not quite sure where you are or who you are that is interesting that 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 epigraph from Eliot I think is very helpful that idea I am dying in my own death and the deaths of those after me the sense that the things she's suspended in she's she's in a loop yeah she's in a loop but by extension we're all in the same loop that we we we're all uh, about to hand on the next thing to the next generation which and, and history will repeat itself because history is a loop time is a loop I hope the listeners will forgive us because we're going to enter some pretty um, metaphysical zones with what's a 99-page <laughs> book. <laughs> but before we do that, let's hear a clip of Lasky in 1983 talking as an author of ghost stories. As you said, Ellie, Margarita Lasky did several different things, and she, she was very well known in the 50s and 60s as a TV pundit and cultural critic. This is quite a late appearance, but this clip and the next one will give you a, a sense of what a pro she was. Does the ghost story have a valid place in literature as we know it? Everything has a valid place in literature, if you can bring it off. It must chill you. It must send shivers down your spine. It must make you afraid to be alone. Do they still have the power to chill and to alarm us? I think they don't. I think what is coming up and has been coming up for 60, 70 years and really has the power to chill and alarm is when real life slips, when there's some slippage in real life. In my own story, the Victorian chaise longue, it was a piece of furniture that created the terror, something that was there and real. Or the famous story by Shirley Jackson, the American story of the lottery. That's terrifying because though it's an imagined real life, it's real life. Or earlier still, John Buchan's story, The Watcher by the Threshold, where the perfectly ordinary man on an ordinary holiday in Scotland meets people who have somehow survived terrifyingly from another time, but a real time. I remember reading in the newspaper of two old women who died in a provincial city, and when they died... People went into the house and they found chained in the attics the naked, bearded son that one of them had borne and hidden six years before. 
That's frightening. That's entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> She's wonderful, Lasky. She is, isn't she? I mean, she was she was Brains Trust and she did What's My Line. And then she made a clear decision. She decided she didn't want to become a media personality. And we already said she was a really serious lexicographer. I mean, you know, a serious amateur lexicographer sending in sort of definitions. She'd read detective novels and mm. she read Victorian store catalogues. You know, she's really interested in the reality, the words that people use in their real lives. It's really interesting. Well, what about that thing she was talking about in that clip, Elia? The idea that you start with the object, the object remains the same, but you shift all the other furniture around so it, so it becomes terrifying. And I think that's all the more frightening for a reader because it's not that some esoteric rune has been discovered or some <laughs> kind of uh, obscure geometry that has been patterned together that only one person has been able to scrape away the, the soil um, to uncover, that it is something recognisable. It is something um, in the book, it, it's something quite, it's ghastly, but in a kind of upholstery kind of uh, <laughs> damp and you you've seen one in your grandmother's attic, and you you kind of don't like to be near it, but you're you're not chilled to the to the core to the bone to have to encounter it. That sense of you said uncanniness before of of it being familiar but unfamiliar suddenly becomes all the more frightening because it is present. It is just out of your field of vision and inescapable for that reason. Again, a, a trap. And it reminds me um, with that interview that in the introduction to the Persephone edition, um, an introduction by P.D. James, she writes, I had the pleasure of speaking to Marganita Lasky's daughter and granddaughter and was told an interesting story about the writing of the novel. Miss Lasky, in order to frighten the reader, needed to frighten herself and went away alone to a remote house the family owned in Somerset. There, without company, she was able to induce in herself the fear which she so effectively evoked in her writing. Um, I mean, wow. that's a nice idea of a writing residence. Like, sorry, I have to leave all my responsibilities. <laughs> I must go to be truly frightened. But I, but I think you can see that this sense of of isolation, but within comfort, where that should be a support, that should be a relaxation or recuperation, uh, a bit like the the kind of sanatorium, open spaces. You're you're allowed to relax on your own terms, um, and yet that's not possible. For the protagonist. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and it's it, it's doubly sort of uh, sinister because, of course, that's exactly what the doctor is suggesting. Move on to the chaise long because, you know, you can move out of the room and you can um, you can look out of the window, uh, and then yeah, she she dozes off. Well, we say novel, novella, or short story. <sighs> I don't know. Show your hands. I'm saying novel. I'll say novel. Yeah, that's novel. I'm going to say novel if uh, So Long, See You Tomorrow is a novel and uh, the J.L. Carr, Month in a Country is a novel. I think it's a novel, isn't it? Uh, the thing I liked in the early part of the novel, which I, th I came to think was one part of the element of why the shift works so brilliantly, is the description of how the Melanie and her husband come to buy the chaise long. Yeah. In a self-consciously modish interaction with a rather crap antiques dealer in North London. <laughs> in Maryland High Street. No, there's yeah. something that it's, it's how can something so naff be the source of such horror is part of the wonder of the book, isn't it? 
she plants it in quite shabby ground and then allows it to find its way out. And she even says, um, in terms of how Melanie, the protagonist, comes across the chaise long, um, on Saturday mornings dressed, so they believed, like people who haggled not from pleasure, but because they must, they would leave the car well way out of sight and wander up and down the chalk farm road. And you're like, these people are, are kind of grotesque and a little bit... Annoying. Yeah. Vulgar and annoying. Yeah, but- and it's definitely not that our sympathies are are with her from the start and that we're invested in her well-being you kind of not that we want her to suffer but we feel that she is at the beginning quite a one-dimensional character shallow um yeah. shallow yeah. and she doesn't seem intrepid she seems kind of willing to be fussed over and to spoilt. be yeah. yeah spoils the word spoils the word spoilt but but also as the book goes on you come to realize that her being spoilt is a different is is a just a different means to subjugate her right that that when you meet whoever we meet in the second half of the novel and we can talk about that in a bit too it's oppression by different means more obvious means but we go back to the beginning of the book and we perhaps think well that character's agency to very use a very contemporary term she doesn't have much more agency but she's more of a, a a conspirator in her own subjugation right I feel like she, the the moment in the second half where she is able to say to a medical doctor, like, I know what I need to do. You need to open the window. You need to let me have a breath of fresh air. And I I might get better. I I will get better in this body. That's what you need to do. Um, And that for me is the moment where where she's kind of shushed and told kind of, I I know you think that. You really need to lie back down and maybe take the syrup. Um, but you just see how she's she's realizing yeah. I've always been this this fussed over reclining weak character and I and I played a part in that I was I was happy to have that role and it's at that moment you realize that she she needed to have broken out of that she needed to have assumed her responsibility and and her ability to think for herself to to marshal her own power and it's too late for her. Um, it's it's ghastly, and it makes me think. You know, um, some research about about dictionaries and encyclopedias. The idea that at the time when she's in the eighteen nineties in that body trapped there, um, she knows, as you say, about penicillin, about refrigerators, about the atomic bomb. Um, she knows how TB might best be recovered yeah. from terrible syntax there. But um, and uh, it reminded me um, there's an eighteen nineties. Uh, it's called the New Encyclopedia, um, and it defines. It has the word malaria there, and it defines it as being this distemper or this disease that tends to occur near swamps, near swampy, <laughs> marshy ground. Um, mal area, bad air. It's the air around the swamp. Yeah. You're so close. You're so close to to seeing <laughs> the connections there, but it's not. It's not knowledge yet. So of course, it's not in the encyclopedias. Um, so this idea of being tethered to one's timeline and um, having to be sequestered to that moment and the fact that, that Melanie here, the protagonist, is able to, for whatever reason, find this porous time um, and embodiment, she's a victim of that. 
rather than able to say, oh, tell you what the national lottery numbers for that week uh, and, and kind of sail away happily with all that foreknowledge. It's, it's also that horror thing. It, it's interesting that Alan Garner chose the, 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 the other story. So it's something he does really well, which is that sense of that things happen. They have a way of repeating themselves that connect to objects. Anybody who's ever slept in a in an old house on an old bed has probably lain there at some point and wondered, I wonder if anybody's died on this bed. I wonder, you know, the, the, the sense of kind of objects lasting longer than human beings. Well, Ellie, you were talking about um, marshes, and that is another eerie coincidence. Uh, if we listen now to uh, Marganita Lasky, again from 1983, discussing a recently published novel. Science fiction which was so excellent 20 years ago, has rather got into the doldrums. There came up then already a story of fantasy, as it was told by Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. We've lately had the semi-poet, semi-fiction writer Angela Carter. I'll say one other thing, though it may be a little rude. We're still living in a youth culture, and ghost stories are of special appeal, I think, to young people, something to do with the heyday and the blood, something to do with the need for this particular grew up the spine. Now, The Woman in Black by Susan Hill, what did you think of it? I wished it were better. It's a difficult length to sustain a ghost story in a full novel. Even Emily Bronte in Wuthering Heights had only one really ghostly chapter, and how superb that is. But to tell me that something is frightening isn't to frighten me. I think these days it has to start where we are, in the life we are, where in our sceptical times nothing is less likely. That, I think, is the thing. Nothing must be less likely. If you go down to the fence, what do you expect? (laughs) (laughs) Marvellous. Well, history has has judged otherwise. We should yes, yes, <laughs> we should yes. say, hasn't it? So, but I thought that was um, I thought that was very very interesting. And what she does, she appears to me, is she reads crime fiction, which she then finds phrases which she shares with the OED. On um, I believe she made twenty five thousand submissions to the OED. Quarter of a million. Quarter of a million, yeah. 250,000. 250, wow. Um, but she also reviews batches of crime novels for the TLS while she's going along. <laughs> so she's reading them, chucking them over her shoulder when she's finished them, filling out the cards, sending those in, and filing reviews. And I've got one of her reviews here of one of those crime novels for the TLS. And it's for a novel by Oswald Wind. <laughs> And it's called Sumatra Seven Zero. <laughs> we promised you Sumatra content. I'm this. safe again. Here it is, and if you can hear it as I read it in the in the voice that we just listened to, Oswald Wind is among the really good thriller writers who take Asia for their field. He follows his last excellent "Walk Softly, Men Praying" set in Japan with this one set unusually for these days in Burma, and a pretty horrible Burma at that. The hero is an elderly Scottish baronet farmer (laughs) travelling at the request of our side back in London with an elderly, well-preserved, mondaine Englishwoman who is looking for her difficult daughter. There is also a baby 
a cunning young CIA man, and several traitors to almost everything that is susceptible to treachery. What is more, and how refreshing, there is virtually no sex. <laughs> to everyone but those who demand the last, this book will appeal for sustained interest and originality of invention. Brilliant. That particular style of ruthless reviewing, we, we, we've somewhat lost, I think. She doesn't muck about. This is what I think. It's quite challenging to hear somebody say about the woman in black, it, I wished it, it had worked better. But that's how she felt. So that's what she said. She writes about fiction in the reading public by Queenie Levis. What Mrs. Levis and her magnificently austere fiction in the reading public entirely fail to realise is that the great tradition in, in fiction simply isn't big enough to satisfy the compulsive reader of fiction. It is the relative paucity of fiction as art as compared with a plethora of art objects, good and bad, in the other disciplines, which inclines me to treat fiction as art as a happy accident rather than a desideratum. <laughs> I think if you can just kind of deploy desideratum into a sentence and then just walk away, <laughs> perfect, do it. Yeah. Again, um, tossing it over the shoulder as she goes. Now, one of the things about Margarita Lasky is, in fact, her fiction writing career doesn't last much over 10 years. No. She, she writes six novels, a short story, between the ages of 30 and 40, between 1944 and 1955. And she lived a, a long and productive life. So, in fact, her, the idea of her as a lost novelist is true, but it's also clearly a thing that she worked on intensively for quite a short period. Ellie, what are the hallmarks of the prose of the Victorian chaise longue? And how do they differ? do we think, from her other books? I think what stands out for me in terms of the writing, um, as I say, I don't think it's the characterization because I think with um, quite purposefully, a lot of the characters here are quite one-dimensional. I think, again, in the introduction by P.D. James, um, she describes the book as a one-act play. And I do feel that often some of the other characters, apart from the protagonist, um, are there as devices, they're there as foils yeah. rather than necessarily rounded. But I think that what she does with a kind of stream of consciousness, a scream of consciousness, I just said that, <laughs> that's telling, um, that where her experiences of having two lives bound up in one body, there's this moment towards the end where she's looking at her hands and she's not recognizing them, but she's mm. starting to recognize the life that could have made these hands possible and you kind of feel that even as she's messing up whether her name is Melanie or Millie and she's hearing people saying Melly to her and she's not sure who's being appealed to which of which of her realities is, is being brought to the fore pronouns trip over themselves uh, experiences of, of what a body could be used for or has been used for start to overlap and winch together and this sense of an identity that is both fracturing, but being forced to be compiled and be justified, even in the act of, of dying, is, is very powerful and, and weird. The thing about Marguerite Lasky's novels, there are six of them, and they are called variously Love on the Supertax, then to, to Bed with Grand Music, which she published under a pseudonym, because it's fairly racy. Then Tory Heaven, Little Boy Lost, The Village, The Victorian Chaise Longue. Yeah. They're all 
it's so different from one another. Yeah, they really, and, really are. And, uh, you know, none of us are, are experts, but, I mean, it's very hard to recognise the author of the Victorian Chaise Lawn in Little Boy Lost, but they're both wonderful books. Little Boy Lost is a tremendous novel. It's interesting, isn't it? She writes some novels and then she stops writing novels and she starts to write books of psychological inquiry. She writes two books about ecstasy. Uh, the first one where she, you know, sent questionnaires to 60 of her friends and said, you know, have you had any of these experiences? But you can see in Little Boy Lost, can't you, that there's a philosophical question is, without giving the whole plot away, a man has been separated from his child uh, through the war and he goes back thinking that he will be reunited with the child, that the child has been found, that the, the, the mother was killed by the Gestapo, the child is... and you realise it's almost impossible. There's this amazing section, isn't there, John? Yeah. I just I mean, wanna, you, this is my little bit of reading from Little Boy Lost, is it, it, this description of the protagonist arriving in France after the war. Yeah. It, France, which to our hero represents, you know, a, a cultural um, apex, has represented a, a, a place of gastronomy and philosophy and... He arrives on a train. She never knows the town. It's 50 miles from Paris. At last, after half an hour's shunting and puffing through a landscape of slag heaps and bombed factories, the train had left Hillary on the platform and jerked slowly away. The station was on the very perimeter of the town. Carrying his bag, he walked away down the wide, shabby boulevard facing him. The town was clearly one of those that had been grossly damaged in the First World War and rebuilt with that haphazard disregard for appearance so characteristic of modern France. Now a second war had come to shatter the grimy ironwork facade of the garage, pit with bullet holes the walls of the gaudy scarlet and yellow brick villa. Overhead, the wires of the tram lines hung in tangled confusion, and underfoot the tarmac was broken and potholed. Most people were presumably relaxing after lunch. So the streets were almost empty. Well, he's wrong. <laughs> His presumption is wrong, as we find out. And I think one of the things about this novel that really struck me is it's written four years earlier than the Victorian Chaise Long. It's in a totally different register. It draws on different properties of literature the characterization is actually fully rounded if she so if she wants to do that she can do it and um the pathos without being sentimental is really brilliantly deployed everyone who reads this novel to the end never forgets the last couple of pages and she makes she makes you she holds you right to the last couple of pages the the, the thing that connects it to shows long and indeed to the other book of hers that i read which is very very different which is a uh, tory heaven which is a, a satire but in all the books there's a sort of there's the familiar being defamiliarized the france that he knew has gone and he finds himself in a france which which is only so superficially familiar and she's so good at objects hmm. and textures as in the victorian shows long you know she's in a room that she describes, and then the room has changed. Yes, yeah, so the landscape is familiar but wrong. Mm. How do we know what we feel? 
How do you know where we are? Do we even know that we're in the same body? Do we, you know, how will I ever know that this child is mine is the big question in the book. How will he ever be able to tell that this child is his? Mm. Ellie, can we hear um, another bit from the Victorian chaise longue, please? Sure. Um, of the two bits, shall I do the one that starts with time had been blotted out? Is that, that, is that the ecstasy one? Yes, yes, yeah, it is. I tried to add ecstasy to my voice. Yes. Um, okay. That's how far it goes. That's 11 on my scale. Um, okay. So this is Time had been blotted out while he listened to the lark. That was what her mind said in, in the desolation. And in the instant while the vicar stood waiting, she had recalled the story that ended with those words the monk wandering out into the cloister garden to hear the lark and returning to find that a hundred years had gone by. And I was perceiving the spring, she remembered. I was in ecstasy as I fell asleep, ecstasy one experiences perhaps once, twice, half a dozen times, when to be human is no longer a lonely terror, but a glory, when time is blotted out by perfection. Ecstasy is timeless. Is that perhaps the clue, she said? Is ecstasy existence in all time and none? And the return into time a random chance, one moment in time's duration as likely as another. But prayer should be ecstasy, she thought. Religious ecstasy. And she answered herself that this time she had failed to achieve ecstasy through religion, that the simulacrum of ecstasy she was trying to achieve while the vicar prayed, a total withdrawal into timeless selflessness, the transfiguration of the burden of self into its apotheosis, all this, though sincerely sought, had been feigned. So when prayer works, the magic is in the books. It is not in the words of the prayer. It is not even the prayer, but the ecstasy that is the instrument. It must be the ecstasy, for if it is the prayer or the words of the prayer, then I have tried that magic and it would not restore the pattern, a useless magic, a magic that failed. I always suspected ecstasy, she said. I knew that it was evil. I said so to Guy. Well, not quite so surely as that, but I wondered, I asked him, It was the first time we slept together. No, not the first time. That was all wrong, she admitted. But the second time, remembering the shabby four-poster bed in the hotel in the Forest of Dean. And afterwards, it was like coming back to life from death. And I said to Guy, it can't be right. We can't be meant to endure such bliss. And he was nearly asleep and he laughed. And he said I was a Puritan at heart. And I asked him if religious people said it was all right to feel ecstasy through God. And he said, yes, that was the only kind they thought was right. And then he went to sleep. (laughs) And outside, it was a grey, rainy dawn. And I remembered that time when I was 16 and I was walking alone down South Audley Street and I went into the chapel. There was no one else there and the organ was playing. I sat down and my mind became flooded with God, ecstatic with God. And that time too, coming back was like coming back to life, exactly the same as when I lay with Guy, the ecstasy identical, whether from man or from God. It is the ecstasy that is to be feared, she said with shuddering assurance. It is separation and severance from reality and time, and it is not safe. The only thing that is safe is to feel only a little, hold tight to time, and never let anything sweep you away as I have been swept. And perhaps that is how, only how I can be swept back. She had not heard the steps coming up to the front door, but she heard the fall of the knocker and the bell clanging down in the basement. That will be Mr. Charters, said the vicar. He had risen clumsily from his knees and was smiling down at her benignly. I told him to call for us here. 
Lizzie's feet were thumping up the stone stairs. The vicar was turning to the door. With desperate strength, Melanie caught at his coat and held him. I can prove it to you, she cried. Only wait and listen to me. I can tell you what will happen in the future. Machines and, and horseless carriages and wonderful materials. If only the words would come out right, the words that should say refrigerator and plastics and atom bomb. If only you will listen, I can prove it to you, she entreated. For if only he would understand and believe, then, surely then, the prayer would be efficacious. But he only said absently, not even turning to look at her, you've been reading old Mother Shipton, I see. And with an expectant smile, he cocked his head towards the door, listening to Lizzie's footsteps along the hall that were joined by Adelaide's coming. Now Melanie strained to listen too, coming not up or down the stairs, but from the bedroom behind the communicating doors. Um, you know, it's so chewy. It's oh so yeah, good. it's great to great to read that momentum developed. You reminded me that there are sections of the book which work, like we say, as melodrama, and sections which work as almost kind of pure philosophy. How can I extrapolate from the the situation into which I've put my protagonist into something more cosmic? Yeah, and it shows the mind kind of having to ricochet from memory to assertion, to uh, tentative kind of horror, um, to action, and, and she's just trapped again. Yeah. So um, I'd like to say a bit about her contribution to the OED, which we talked about earlier. This is really what she spent much of the later part of her life doing. As we said, submitted a total of around 250,000 quotations to the OED, where Ellie, she would find a particular, I mean, the Liar's Dictionary is built around a similar faithful and fictional process in that case of locating uses of words in particular quotes and submitting them to the dictionary. But also I think backlisted listeners will appreciate how she did this because it was fundamentally about reading. In order to flood the OED with such an abundant accumulation of linguistic booty, I'm reading here from a, me a, a, a memoir of her contribution. Birchfield tells us she dredged numerous bulky Edwardian sales catalogues for the names of domestic articles. She read much of the crime fiction published in the 20th century and reviewed it for the TLS. And she scoured the whole rich literary world of 20th century and some older books and magazines for their unregistered vocabulary. Elsewhere, he specifies 19th century works such as the novels of Charlotte Young and Dickens as her special hunting ground, along with the letters of George Eliot and Mrs. Gaskell, the general field of the domestic arts, old catalogues, books on gardening, cooking, embroidery, etc., and various modern newspapers and journals. Lasky herself mentions George Bernard Shaw, Beerbohm, Hemingway, McNeese, Elizabeth Bowen, Graham Greene, Ogden Nash, John Osborne, Dorothy Wordsworth journals, and George Manley Hopkins prose as sources she read in their entirety for the dictionary. One of her special enthusiasms was the writing of Charlotte Young. As a result, this novelist's represent representation in the OED rose sharply yeah. between the first and second editions. <laughs> and that's really interesting. And you were talking earlier, Ellie, about how in order to present to their users the uh, appearance of objective authority. Dictionaries are reliant on the contributions of thousands of in quirky individuals. 
Right. I mean, there's a brilliant book. I'm sure you've read it by Simon Winchester. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, about the uh, one particular correspondent who sent in um, the surgeon of Crowthorn. That's all right. Sent in words from Bedlam, um, and I think that that links to my mind very well with the themes and the motifs of the Victorian Chaison, in part because what we're seeing there is Lasky ensuring that the um, language being used as a resource is a living language, is one that is coming from uh, Vogue catalogues, it's coming from um, uh, detective novels as much as it's coming from the 19th century, that she's reading voraciously and ensuring that the words and their definitions are coming from all of these different usages and, and coinages rather than um, a strict, narrow canon um, that is only kind of uh, used in a, in a cloistered, scholastic kind of way. Um, and it's very pleasing to know that not only is her relationship with the dictionary dictated by how much she was able to offer to it and and allow that anthill to grow in, in such a way, but she's also then become the source of texts that have been submitted as examples of usages. And one of them um, is from Tory Heaven, uh, 1948. Uh, it's used as an example of the word women's. So the women's colleges at Oxford became reserved for bees, this idea of... Um, society and the satire mm. being uh, kind of sequestered into A, Bs and Cs. Yeah. Um, it's nice to know that her work uh, is also being plumbed and enjoyed <laughs> as a resource for, mm. for the OED. Can I ask you before we wrap up, um, I felt there was a real, I, I'd read this, I read the Victorian show song about four or five years ago. Uh, so I was coming back to it and I, I, uh, I feel I got a lot more out of it reading it a second time. Uh, I can imagine reading it again. Did it speak to you here in 2020, for better or worse? I mean, being stuck in a room <laughs> and considering uh, the confines of a room, um, yeah, yeah, it does. It also, you know, um, my my wife, uh, Nell Stevens, is, is currently pregnant, and mm. the idea of how, for how, long through time women and rearing children but also being with child um was a trap yeah um it it it, it certainly reading that put a new spin on on the narrative um for me in 2020 it's it's locked down novel it's a locked in novel isn't it it's one of the best novels of its kind i've ever read i think i i, I like andy i will definitely reread it i i if you if you're interested in how time leaks uh, and consciousness leaks and our sense of self is not firm. It's so odd because her, her prose is so, is so precise and so neat and so beautifully expressed. You know, she's not somebody who goes on for sort of Laurentian kind of tone poems. And yet somehow she, she manages to capture that sense of mounting ontological fear that we might not know who we are it's a brilliant short book it's a great choice i felt it had a lot in common with the magic mountain Good evening. 
The time has come for us to leave you to ponder the mystery. Huge thanks to Ellie for shining light into the dark corners of the sick room, to Nikki for connecting our past and present so seamlessly, and to Unbound for the barley water. <laughs> for the syrup. <laughs> <laughs> you can download all... Uh, I think it's more than this, John, isn't it? You can download like, dozens of these things. You can download all 127, <laughs> eight, nine episodes of Backlisted, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website at backlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter or Facebook and now in sound and pictures on Instagram too. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted. We aim to survive without paid-for advertising, and your generosity helps us do that. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early, and for a fraction of the price of a bamboo Canterbury in a Notting Hill boutique, they get two extra lot listeds a month, our very own chaise long, where we three recline and dream of films and tunes as well as books. <laughs> Trapped in the past. <laughs> uh, before we thank them we have the special pleasure of publicly commending two new master storytellers whose reckless generosity we seek to repay with undying gratitude thank you Deborah Makumiski and Bob Kerry for helping us continue to make this show uh, we are profoundly grateful to you both we are and uh, also, uh, we have, a, a, as always, a, a list of our latest lot listeners who, um, again, thank you for making for, for, for your generosity and making it happen. So um, I'll, I'll kick off. Thank you to Brendan Chisholm, to Sarah Wiss, to Michelle Waters, to Sarah Morgan, to Ashley Harrison, to Jane Downey, to Ronan Hessian, wonderful writer, to Ben Metcalf, to Charlotte Thorne, to Paul Isaacs, to Robert Shearman. Never um, heard of him. <laughs> Thanks, Robert. To Elizabeth Irvin and to Alex Watts. Rachel Gruner. Thanks, Rachel. Neil Olson, Annette Relly, Alice Stubbs, Wendy Erskine. Thank Great. you, Wendy Erskine. Yeah, wonderful. Simon Haynes, Bernard Quatermoose. <laughs> His or her real name, I have no <laughs> doubt. John Brown, Timothy Knapman, Tony Dempsey, Anthony Dugan. Anne Ristick, Stephen Booth, and Richard Sully. Thank you all. Uh, were you to sign up, listeners, to our Patreon, which, remember, is how we fund making Backlisted, we are having a Backlisted Christmas drinks on December the 21st, to which everyone's invited in the fashionable 2020 manner. That's to say uh, it'll be a, 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 a webinar bring your own drinks. Um, but we're really looking forward to it. It's going to be an actual episode of Lot Listed that we're recording, but you'll be able to see us do it. Literally you'll be able to ask us. Us questions and set, uh, ask us questions and also uh, set questions in a quiz, which That's all right. of which John Mitchinson will answer and none of which I will be able to. So if you, if you want to humiliate me, now's your chance. Uh, Marvellous. Um, and thank you, to, uh, th thank you to Ellie and obviously to the people uh, of Sumatra. Uh, and their Ellie, worldwide. thank you so much and all your <laughs> Sumatran friends. Oh, thanks for having me. It's, it's been mentioned that um, apparently uh, the Tamil, uh, which is one of the languages spoken in Sumatra, the Tamil for rat is Ellie. So there's, ah, there's another connection. They keep oh, on coming. Brilliant. <laughs> right. Thank you for having me. The Liar's Dictionary is available in paper form, e-form, audio form any other forms yet 
uh, ecstatic form. (laughs) (laughs) It is is excellent. It is a total, totally brilliant. It's a wonderful book. Thank you. We'll be back in a fortnight. You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks. (laughs) 